In Australia, nicotine vapes are classified as prescription medicines. And the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners are calling for vapes to be prescription only in Aotearoa. The number of young people picking up vaping tripled in two years, according to the New Zealand Health Survey. With us today is the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners President, Dr. Brian Betty. Dr. Betty, welcome. Yeah, look, thanks, thanks, um, Wallace. Nice to be here. I'm medical director, not president, by the way. Oh, no, I'm sorry. To clarify, what the college has actually said is we think it should be pharmacy only, not prescription only, So, um, which is a slight difference, but, but getting it from your pharmacist or quit smoking line or some sort of smoking program. You could have by by script with your GP as well. But, um, yeah, the way we access vaping is really the key issue here. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Australian researchers are using New Zealanders as an example of what they don't want to be like, that we have a quote-unquote a whole generation addicted. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, I think this is the actual problem. So so there's no... Look, my vaping is there to be a smoking cessation tool, and we're fully, fully 100% supportive of that because it's less harmful than smoking. The problem is, especially with our young people and our adolescents, that the rate of vaping is actually going up. And in particular, the rate of vaping with nicotine in it, and nicotine is incredibly addictive, is actually climbing quite significantly we've got a real, real concerns about the long-term consequences of that happened, happening when we don't know the long-term consequences of the vaping on, on the lungs and the body. So, yeah, the, 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 the younger people, especially our adolescents, that's what we feel is a real issue here, um, picking up vaping when they wouldn't otherwise smoke. All right, just to clarify before we go to our panel, uh, Brian, that you do endorse and recognise vaping as a very good smoking cessation product? 100%, and that's where it needs to be used for smoking cessation, not as an alternative to cigarettes for people who would otherwise not smoke. Because because what we do know, and this is really, really important, uh, there are some issues that are starting to to emerge. So the people who vape, um, we're worried about the lungs and the damage long-term it could cause on the lungs. It tends to worsen asthma. There's some new evidence that's come out that it could increase the risk of blood clots, especially if there's nicotine in the vapes. And, um, you know, that, 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 that the, there are these problems. And longer term, um, we, and we know it's very addictive with nicotine, and longer term, we don't know what other problems could be emerging here. So we've got to be very, very careful about the access to vaping and how many of our younger people are actually starting to take it up and getting addicted to vaping per se. Zoe? Yeah, this is a great subject. Um, And vapes are so readily accessible. You can go to your local dairy, your local um, servo. They carry only the tobacco and mint flavours. But if you want a flavoured vape, then you've got to go to a specialist vape shop. um, And they are popping up absolutely everywhere. And you can buy flavours like mango and bubblegum and grape and all of those things. So I guess my question is, do we need to ban flavoured vape juice is what they call call it, um, and just have tobacco flavoured or harshly regulate this. Uh, It's also relatively inexpensive compared to smoking, by the way. Yeah, look, it is inexpensive compared to smoking. I think that's one problem. As you've tapped quite rightly into, the accessibility of the vapes is another problem. 
and we need to reduce the attractiveness of the vapes and probably the flavouring is a big thing that starts to do that. So all those things I think need to be considered um, in what is I think quite a liberal environment for the accessing of vapes and that's our key, key problem here which, which goes to, to you know the college said at the select committee when I was talking about tobacco and things that vaping was an issue that we need to spend more time on and that we need to start to think about issues like whether it was pharmacy only or through quit smoking programs and again you know as we've seen Australia's been down that path and yeah I think this is a real issue for us. Andrew yeah, look, yeah, something I'm concerned about as a father of a teenager, um, okay. you know, if you go back a decade or so, then smoking was sort of on the way out with young people. There was less and less doing it, and, you know, it was moving to be uncool, and just, you know, there wasn't the uptake, and it was a good thing. And then with vaping, it seems like it's just increased dramatically amongst particularly young people, as has been mentioned, and it's viewed, I guess it's viewed as cool, but also viewed as no risk is the sort of impression I get. And I don't think what Dr. Bodie was saying before around some of the risks probably haven't been highlighted enough to young people in terms of actually, you know, it doesn't come without consequences. There are potential consequences here that you need to think about. There's clear um, so concern. I think we've got to do okay. more on that. Yeah, well, there's clear concern, Brian. I mean, just summing one up, uh, I completely agree with this discussion on vaping and impact on teens. Thank goodness it's finally been talked about. As a mum of two teen boys, it's terrifying how easy it is to access and how many underage teens are vaping. It's something, um, Brian, I hear again and again and again. And as another text said, you look at those shops. Those shops look super cool, as Zoe said, with all the flavours. Yeah, look, they they do, and look, we've now got some research coming out of New Zealand in terms of the impact. So that so you know, like last year, two thousand twenty-one, looking at year ten students, that thirty percent of the daily vapors at year ten had never smoked cigarettes. Now that's a real, real concern in terms of what's actually going on. Um, but the other thing that was starting to occur amongst those younger people is, you know, if we look back to two thousand nineteen, only twenty-five percent of the vape vaping students were using nicotine. If we jump forward to 2021, 80% of the vapes had nicotine in them. And the reason that's a problem, that's where you get hooked on the vapes. It's really, really hard to come off them. So there's these shifts and changes that I think we should be really concerned about. And it's these early signals that we need to be addressing this problem. Okay, just finally, uh, Ron, while you're here, because let's go back to uh, one of the reasons for base, and that is, um, you know, that smoking cessation. Um, smoking kills 5,000 people a year, <laughs> you know, considerable. Uh, Adam in Wellington says, uh, ex-pack-a-day smoker here. Over the, over the years, i tried everything. Gums, patches, medications. I've been two years smoke-free now, and that is only because of vapes. And part of that is the availability. I could get them everywhere that I used to get cigarettes from. Now, if vapes become pharmacy-only, I may, may end up going back to cigarettes as they will be far more available than vapes. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this way. So clearly, Dr. Betty, there's a little bit of discussion to go on uh, yeah. with this topic. And I've got a huge sympathy for what's just been said there because of smoking cessation, you are much better off vaping than taking cigarettes. So, yeah, there is a balancing act here. 
I suppose what, what I'm saying at the moment, or what we're saying, is we need to have a discussion about this. Mm. We need to get it out in the open, talk about it, talk about the availability, how we're getting access to vapes, so, so that we're in the right space going forward. Um, and, yeah, right, for smoking cessation, we need to make it as freely available as we can, but we need to think about the ways that we're doing that without hooking our younger people onto to, to vapes who would otherwise not smoke. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Brian Beatty there. Um, very, very interesting stuff. Someone says here, I live in a small South Island town of 13,000. So 13,000 people, we have five dedicated vape shops. You're on the panel, RNZ National. To this, tomorrow night, census night. You might have done it already. Hopefully you have all the information you need, probably several letters by now. If you don't, it's easy to get an access code from census.govt.nz. You sorted, uh, Zoe? Sorry, I was just drinking a glass of water. Yes, I am all sorted, all filled out. My flatmate and I got together on Sunday afternoon ah. and we filled it all out together and so we're all sorted. Oh, it's goodness. Good. Zoe's ahead of me. Uh, Andrew, what about you? Yeah, no, sorted. Um, oh, gosh, wife okay. was yelling out questions to me the other night while she was filling it in for the whole family, so I'm pretty sure she hit the submit button. <laughs> Okay, very good. So uh, Andrew and Zoe, they've done it. With us is uh, Jesse Whitehead, Senior Fellow at uh, uh, Tanera Institute for Population Research at the University of Waikato. Jesse, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. This is, this must be your big day, huh? This is, uh-huh. <laughs> this is, this is the day where you, as a researcher, get all your information from. That's right. It's a it's a huge day, and actually, um, I still remember in the early thousands filling out my first census, and um, I got very interested at that point. Um, I did wonder why they didn't ask more important questions like Poppy Pops or Tim Tams or who should be the next All Blacks coach. Um, but thankfully, I've, I've arguably matured a bit since then, and now I do use a lot of the census data um, in the work that I do. And it must be really fascinating to unpack what is that really granular data, especially, Jesse, as more questions, a wider variety of questions are coming uh, in. Yeah, that's right. And and even some of the basic stuff, like how many people live in certain places, yeah. is really important to know um, for things like access to rural healthcare services. Okay. Um, who lives where, what, what sort of characteristics do they have, and, and how can we match services to those community needs? Um, yeah, and, and as you say, some of the newer questions as well, such as, um, you know, what are the conditions of some of our houses around the country? Um, which houses have mould, and how does that correlate with um, other characteristics? So I guess it's, it's around using that information to um, better inform decision-making. Um, so it's a chance for everyone to contribute to that. Your thoughts, questions, Zoe? Well, I was going to say, uh, given the All Blacks coaching situation, I can definitely talk to you about that subject. Maybe we should talk about it before the end of the show. Um, yeah, I love filling out my census. I remember filling it out the first time when I was quite young. Um, but I don't know. I found it quite fascinating, particularly the stuff around your household, because 
if I remember correctly, some of the data around the households previously, you know, they asked questions around, do you have running, clean running water, a toilet, a running shower? And something like, I think it was one out of six New Zealand homes were missing one of those things. And that is, for yes. me, seriously concerning. Not having access to basic like toilet needs, for example, is terrifying. So everyone deserves to have a warm, dry home with running water and a toilet. So I'm interested to know to see if we've improved. Um, and yeah, so when do we get the results? That is a good question that I should know the answer to, but I think usually it takes a little while for the full census to come back, um, the results, and, and they, the stats they do tend to um, release the data in stages. So um, I think sometime this year we'll get the kind of population counts, um, and then it's a kind of staged release of some of the more detailed data. Um, but, but you're right, the census is really important for looking at some of those trends over time. Um, how are our communities changing? How, what are the strengths of some of those communities? How could we help them more? Um, so, yeah, please fill in your census. Indeed. <laughs> as much as, yeah, exa- exactly right, Jesse. Uh, and, Andrew Hogarth. Yeah, um, I, I know how important some of this information is for stats in terms of being able to ensure that areas get their, all the services and the correct amount of services they need. One concern I've got, um, you know, the last couple of years we've seen the rise of the conspiracy theories and a whole lot of disinformation about various things. Is there a concern that there'll be a number of people that refuse to fill it in on the, I don't know, whatever basis they might come up with, um, if it's some UN plot, blah, blah, blah? Do you see? Um, yeah, no, that's a good question, and it's it's not something I really work with directly. That's that's not my area of expertise. Um, but you know, there'll there'll always be people who don't want to fill in the census for whatever reason. That um, you know, a lot of people may have um, a justified, and in, in some cases, mistrust of the government. Um, so that's you know probably a, a, a job for Stats NZ that I think they're probably trying to do is increase trust, um, and I guess showcasing how the census is used is one way to do that. Um, I guess the other thing is that it's not just data used by the government. So, you know, the census is the data. The data is publicly accessible. So often it's community organisations. Um, so it might be Japanese people in the Waikato region saying, "Hey, how many of us actually still speak Japanese?" And they use that yeah. data to then advocate for resources and say, "Yeah, actually, we do want to apply for funding to, um, you know, foster that that language ability." Jesse. So, yeah. Very good to have you here, uh, and all the best uh, unpacking all that uh, wonderful census research. That's Jesse Whitehead uh, at the Institute for Population Research at the University of Waikato. It is 7 to 5 on the panel, and it's not just census that's big news tomorrow. Harry Styles' love on tour is in town. Well, his album, just one album of the year at the Grammys. By all accounts, he's a phenomenon. Crowds of devotees uh, known as Harry's or Stylers. Feather Boas all sold out. But who is he? Is he the modern-day Donny Osmond? The modern-day Leif Garrett? With us is Kirsten Zemke, University of Auckland Senior Lecturer in Ethnomusicology. Kirsten, kia ora. Kia ora. I can't escape the immense buzz around this man. What makes Harry Styles unique? 
Well, in some ways, it's that he's not unique. It's a continuation of what we've always enjoyed about pop music. Flair, style, sexiness, cuteness, catchy songs. You know, this is about fun. This is about connection. This is about community. He dabbles in a bit of sort of femme dressing. So there's a little bit of gender play there, you know, sort of echoing David Bowie or Mick Jagger or Prince. Um, and and he just sort of a pop pop artist extraordinaire. Yeah. You know, high production values, you know, just just quality. Just quality, eh? Zoe. Um, I remember when he first appeared on, I think it was Britain's Got Talent as a 16-year-old, and he was very charismatic, and it's continued on. As much as I like Harry Styles, and unfortunately I'm not going to the gig, I would much rather go to see his opening band called Wet League. They're an indie band from oh, the yes. Isle of Wight. Two women, and they are epic. They are so cool. They've got amazing, catchy tunes, uh, including one called Chaise Lange, which went completely by bonkers on social media. Um, so, yeah, I much prefer okay. them over right. Harry Styles. A, a, a big uh, up for wet leg. What about you, Andrew Hogard? Um, uh, heard of him? Uh, do, do you want me to get my daughters in here to interview them on this? Because they've probably got a much better idea than I do. <laughs> um, I guess my only question would be, because he's sort of in the, I take it the same sort of mould as like Robbie Williams was 15 or however long years ago and other ones. Is he going to sort of disappear like they did, or has he got staying power? It's quite a good question there, Andrew. Yeah, you want me to answer that? Yes, of course. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's on whether he can cope. I mean, when we see a lot of our pop stars get sort of churned through the lifestyle, you know, and how much they can um, survive fame, you know, and all the things that come with it. It looks like a lot of fun. But we've seen, you know, especially with younger artists, you know, it can be a struggle, and we'll see how well he can cope with everything going on. He's at a real peak right now, you know? Right. That that aspect, just raising the ad, aspect of, um, you know, um, similar in some ways to David Bowie, to Prince, that idea of dressing with flair, dressing with style, that, that whole sexy thing, a little bit of um, androgyny there as well, Kirsten. So he's really, he's formulated quite a compelling package, huh? Well, yeah, you know, some people might say, is he queer baiting if he's not actually gay himself? But it really isn't about his sexuality. It's about right. gender performance, that it's a type of masculinity that you can be fancy and shiny um, and glittery and feather boy and platform shoes if you want and just sort of express yourself. And um, straight women like it. Very good, Kirsten. Very, very good indeed. Thanks for the explainer. Uh, that's Kirsten Zemke from uh, the University of Auckland. Uh, she is an ethnomusicologist on just why Harry Styles is just so huge. Uh, we've got a little bit of time, Zoe, before we go. I've got to get your thoughts on this. Who do you think will be the next All Blacks coach? 
Well, there's, uh, quickly, there's two things to keep in mind with this. Uh, at the moment, we're talking about a two-horse race, right? Scott Robinson, Jamie Joseph. Yeah. But do not underestimate or rule out Joe Schmidt. So when it comes to the most experience of international coaches right now in New Zealand, he's it. He coached Ireland from 2013 to 2019. Uh, he's currently the All Blacks attack coach. He's your man to watch. And then there's the tickets. This is a bit like a political campaign. So they will be going out trying to get other coaches on their ticket. Um, and so whoever's got the strongest ticket will be coach. There you Amazing. go. That's my, that's my two cents. Andrew. You don't think Dave Rennie's got a shot? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> really interesting intel. So thank you for your time. A little bit of a Eric Clapton here uh, for um, the passing of Georgina Bias. Someone suggested this track. Uh, Zoe, George, uh, uh, Andrew Hogard, you've been fantastic both. Kia I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint is next with Lisa Owen. I'm back tomorrow, 3.45. See you then.